Hello, it is Denise from Women Beyond a Certain Age. Sometimes after we've recorded a podcast with our guest, we want to do a part two because we haven't finished everything that we were talking about or some great points have come out. This is podcast two with our friend, Ramin Ganeshram. <laughs> oh, so yep. close. You got it. You got okay. it. Yep. Her book that we were talking about, another podcast, please look for it because it's excellent. Your book, The General's Cook. I mean, that I loved it. Thank you so much. And for us talking last time. But as we were closing, Ramin said several things to me that are so to me, women points. Okay. <laughs> and what Ramin was talking about was, you know, I said, what are you working on next? And people sometimes, because Ramin, you're not in one category. Do you know what I mean? I can see right. this. You write, you're a historian. You write about Hercules, you know that time period. You also can write about Caribbean food because your father mm -hmm. was from Trinidad. I'm assuming you know something about Iranian food also since mm -hmm. your mother's from Iran. Yes. So <laughs> yeah. this to me is just a mix and you made this point in the last podcast. America isn't just white people, okay? Just mm. a whole bunch of, we are such a mixture of so many immigrants. I've had people once in a while say something derogatory. This is years ago. Of course, I'm not friends with them any longer, but they would say something derogatory about Hispanics. LA is built on Hispanics. They're the mayors. They're the judges. This is ridiculous. This is- Well, the California was part of Mexico. Thank <laughs> so, you. I mean- Come on, you know, so. give it a rest. People want to pigeonhole us. Okay. And women, especially now, I don't know why that I don't hear, and I'll just tell you my story and then please tell me yours. When I first moved to LA and I graduated from culinary school and I was working in a couple of restaurants, I did it so I could see how restaurants worked, mm -hmm. but I made a business card because I had been taking writing courses at UCLA extension and the editor of the Herald in that time became a good friend of mine. And she kept saying, kid, you know, try to learn a little punctuation. But no, you can be a writer. I mean, she was so wonderful to me that her name was mm. Kit Snedeker. She changed my life. Well, then also I had known I was going to be a food stylist because I had good presentation skills. So blah, blah, blah. I get a business card made. It says chef, stylist, writer. And I passed that business card in 1988. 1989 to people that were going to give me jobs and they would say things like you should pick one right and I think are you kidding well now so we've come out of a pandemic I don't know a woman in food or I mean in the past 20 years that hasn't had to do more than one thing to make right. a living right. okay so if this is still a bridge that people are having to cross how do we change that you know, besides doing really good work like you. Thank you. Well, I mean, listen, I mean, this is what I think. I think, and I see this more as a historian than anything else. People, we as a nation are mentally lazy, right? We want to have simple messages. This is true of human beings, right? This is the basis of marketing, right? Simple messages sell. Yeah. And it's because we don't want to take the effort to really think deeply about things. And so that's why you can't be in the minds of many a chef a writer and a stylist or a historian and a chef and an author, right? And so, so there's that and there's, that's bad enough. And I think that what we need to do is kind of reform for our young people, the way that you look at things, that the world is 
filled with possibilities. One of my favorite quotes of literature is from Hamlet, where he says to Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy, Horatio. And I think that if we adopted that in the teaching of young people and taught, taught them to think broadly and with an open mind, then the need to have simple messages wouldn't be so great. But more than that, I think what we have to think about is the nature of the United States, the blessing of the United States, is that it has been a place where you know cultures cross since its beginning, often for not nice reasons, right? Yeah. You know, crossed with violence and oppression, and then crossed, um, you know, by voluntarily, you know, often to flee violence and oppression. But the point is, we have many, 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 many different cultures in the United States, and now we're all starting to mix with one another. And so to tell a person that they can engage with all their cultural heritages is is an assault. It's an aggression, right? It's aggressive enough to tell a professional, you can't do three things that you're qualified to do. It's even more aggressive to tell someone, hey, I understand that you're Puerto Rican and Jewish, but pick one, right? I understand that you're Trinidadian and Iranian, but pick one. I mean, that's obnoxious, right? So I'll give you a great example. In Trinidad, you know, the culture in Trinidad is largely West African, East Indian, Chinese, Syrian, you know, because you've been there, as you've told me. Beautiful. So- so, and it's an amazing culture. I have to say yes. that even though it's my culture, I'll say, I'll say, it, right. So one of the things that um, I make all the time and often people say, why are you making that? That's not, that's not your culture is, <laughs> is char siu bao, right? The Chinese oh. pork buns. Oh, because it is a very heritage food in Trinidad. The Chinese indenture laborers brought in the 1820s. It's remained largely intact. Our friend Grace Young wrote about this beautifully in Stir Frying to the, to the Sky's Edge. Uh, and she talks about how this char siu bao is virtually identical and unchanged. But then there's also variations where we put things like curry chicken or curry shrimp or vegetables or what have you in it. You know, and I learned to make this from my cousin's cousin who owns the oldest Chinese sit-down restaurant in Trinidad. And I learned oh. this from him. Right? Oh, wow. And so wow. I make it and, and they're spot on, they're authentic, right? And people will say to me, well, you can't make that or you can't write about that or you can't talk about that because it's not your culture, but it is my culture, right? right. So, it's, so it's this assumption that people make. Like I think that we as Americans feel that we should be able to assume things by people by the veracity of what we see with our own eyes. But sometimes... What you see, the eyes lie. What you think you see is not what you see, right? So be more open-minded. So well, one of the many women mentors that I had was a woman named Judy Rogers who ran Zuni Cafe in San Francisco. There were two women running restaurants in San Francisco in 1984. It was Alice Waters in Berkeley and like Judy Rogers who'd come mm -hmm. out of Alice Waters. There were no women chefs. Do you mm -hmm, know what I mean? Mm -hmm, yep. There weren't any. Julia Child had come, and I knew, of course, who Julia was, but Julia didn't even call herself a chef most of the time because Julia never ran a restaurant. She would say, I, you know, I'm a food writer. Blah, blah. Okay, so everybody had, always people were being labeled. And so I got to spend a half an hour one day with Judy Rogers, and she said to me, Denise, you have to just do what you're going to do and not listen to what anybody else says to you. 
because she had very little time. It was kind of her to take this half an hour. We had a cup of coffee together. We had been networked through another woman that was graduating from the Culinary Academy. But although she just said, you, she really didn't say it like that. She said, you got to fucking do whatever you think is right, kiddo, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. just do it. Mm-hmm. Now, it's come back to me a thousand times in right. my life. Right. I mean, but mostly with other young women. Are you a mother? Are you a stay-at-home mother? Do you work? I mean, I see young women facing this sometimes. Um, still, I thought we'd already dealt with that. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? But people like to label them. Yep. And I say to them, honey, you got to fucking do what you want to do. Do you know what right. I mean? And not listen to other people's stuff. The mm. first book, which has never been published that I wrote, was, and it's so funny you should say it, it was about Italian food. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget Judith Weber, but the agents of the day wrote back, and Irina Chalmers, who was so lovely to me, she said, oh, honey, you can't write about Italian food. I said, why? She said, because you don't live in Italy. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I, you know, I think it's gotten somewhat better, I guess. But I think about the narrow mindedness of that. Right. American Italian food is its own amazing thing that varies from all the cities where Italian Americans have settled. And it's its Absolutely. own thing and it's got its own heritage and amazing stories. And yet, you know, I mean, I think it's different now around Italian food, perhaps, but Somewhat, yeah. I think it's gotten somewhat better, absolutely. And I also think, but that's about the writer. I think the writer has to say to themselves and not listen to anyone else or a marketing executive or to their publisher. You know, if if they're going to listen to that kind of input, then they're they're not going to succeed. That's all. Right, right. Grace Young and I knew each other, this is really weird, in our early 20s in Mill Valley. It's a long story, but we both grew up in San Francisco. Yes. And she always laughs because she knows in San Francisco in the olden days, I mean, it was like, there was certainly Chinatown always, but as the fifties progressed, one block was Italian, one block was Chinese, one block was Italian, one block was Chinese. And we all mingled. Mm-hmm. all mingled and so the first time mrs wong a, a dear neighbor we got to her house and she fed us after school we were supposed to go there and we got home and my mother said what did she make i said mommy they were a chinese ravioli yes yeah and i ate bao and different things and i you know since there of course you realize there isn't almost a culture in the world that doesn't have a little piece of dough stuffed with meat okay yes, that's right that's right everybody makes it everybody that's makes right. something that's how you stretched the meat and that's how you fed your family. That's right. It's so difficult, but it's not if you could self-publish, you could publish any, I mean, I'm sure you must have a million other ideas of things that you're going to write about. Yeah, definitely I do. And, you know, I, I'll say that a lot of it more skews more toward now um, history and social history, you know, gotcha. kind of how history affects social history. I mean, you know, food history is always part of, what I write, um, but I've become more interested in it as an, a doorway into bigger issues of American history and American culture yeah. and, and how it affects current events um, rather than kind of just writing a recipe for its own sake, which is a wonderful get, thing, you know, and I do some I of that, right? But I think there are people better than me to do that because they have a passion for it in a way that I don't. I have a skill for it, but my real passion is to kind of un, uh, to surface these hidden histories I and to really it. unpack them um, so that we can learn from them 
um, and, and think about where we're going. Well, I'm so grateful to you. Now, I mean, I'm going to ask you right on the air. If I wanted to read a few paragraphs out of your book, The General's yeah. Cook, is that okay? Of course. Okay, then I'll tell you what we might do. I might read a little bit out of it. And Cindy will edit it into this shorter podcast that we've done so that people could have a taste of your book. I would love that. That's amazing. I would absolutely love that. I, I love it. I have to tell you the other thing that you were saying, and it's so interesting to me that sometimes people, which is why I think food writing is so important mm-hmm. in whatever Jessica Harris that we talked about in the last podcast, so many different things. When people get food snobby about stuff mm-hmm. and they do and you know and oh yeah. my god the wars that break out about that how pasta carbonara came about i mean so, one day it was uh, so know. on fire i thought to myself i'm gonna have a glass of wine and not think about pasta carbonara because <laughs> people were out of their minds about true it. true but i know this my grandmother came from italy And during the 50s, when Betty Crocker cake mixes came out, she would buy a yellow cake mix. And as a woman who had gone through Mussolini and the war and starvation and some really difficult times, I remember the delight in her face when she would, I mean, she made everything else from scratch. I mean, she, the, her pasta was extraordinary. Her raviolis were wow. filled. I mean, it was all, and she would say, we, she would only make them ramen at nighttime because that's when the fog in San Francisco was the most like her Northern Italy town. Okay. Wow. Wow. And would have the windows open because the raviolis would be moist. The dough would not get dry. Okay. They would dry, but not get too dry. It was just wonderful. That's amazing. Amazing. That's a great story. That's a great story. But she would always get these yellow cake mixes and make ricotta cakes and make rum cakes and make fancy Italian desserts. But she would say to me, it saves so much time (laughs) because she thought, that was magic. So when yes. people make fun of cake mixes, do you know what I mean? And people do, or people make fun of different things. I said, you know, I have to tell you something. When you come from another country, it was pretty magical to be able to buy that. That's right. And all you did was add an egg. That's right. That's right. And you had a gorgeous cake for your family. And they never frosted it. She put powdered sugar on it. Now I have to tell you, and I, I make the same cake still with a little rum or I put ricotta cheese in it. <laughs> People say, oh, it's yeah. so perfect. How did you make this? I said, it's a yellow cake mix because that's what my grandmother taught me. Well, you know, the funny thing about cake mix, just as a little aside, Please. cake mix was a, was a luxury item when it was first introduced in the early 20th century uh, because it was this idea of this, you know, technologically forward, amazing development out of these big fancy food companies because in those periods of time, people had already spent centuries millennia laboring over food so to not have to labor meant that you were wealthy and that you were advanced but the original cake mixes had powdered egg in it and all you had to do was actually add water and they didn't sell because people thought that was a little too freaky and a little too like weird science and so they had to bring them back off the shelves re-engineer so that people could add their egg along with the oil and water and that and that you are so correct. Also, at the turn in the 20s, people saw, started losing their health. 
and their maids and their cooks. So, you know, this was a, a big deal. Well, I also, and I have friends that add two eggs and a quart of a cup of oil to the cake mix and call it homemade. (laughs) Yes. Right. Exactly. You know, I'll tell you that I like you when the base of the cake is that yellow cake, but there's other things that are being added to the cake to make it something more authentic or heritage. I'll use the cake mix because what do I need that aggravation for? Right? Like if I want to make a, yeah, pineapple rum cake. Yeah. Thank you. No, I think it's very sweet. Uh, One of my, I think it's very dear and um, no, I have no problems with stuff like that, Ramin, because I'm, Mm-mm. I cook all the time now that I've retired. Yes. When full tilt boogie, when I worked 50, 60 hours a week, I didn't cook. We tested recipes and my husband was kind enough to eat whatever was okay. from <laughs> Whatever was made. That's right. That's right. So now yeah. that I cook all the time, I loved, I love to cook, which I think is amazing after 40 years, but I still love it. It is. It is. It really is. Well, young lady, thank you so much again for your time. I know you have you have a thank job. You. you have to get to you have to get to work. I do. I do. I have to get to some things. You don't have all day to just sit around with me. <laughs> Although I would love to. The world is waiting for you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's Denise. I am reading a page from Ramin's book, The General's Cook, because I'm trying to wet your wet your taste buds. It's such beautiful writing and it's such a lovely novel, but 90% of it is historically true. So here we go. The General's Cook. Philadelphia, winter, 1793. The man who stood, legs firmly apart, his gold-headed walking stick planted in front of him with his beefy hands resting on top, smiled slightly, even though his eyes were half-closed, as though he might doze off. He was undisturbed by those who walked around him, speaking in hoarse whispers. Nor did he note the rage and bustle of the marketplace in front of him and the docks behind him. His shirt sleeves, white against his dark skin, were rolled up to show forearms layered with muscle and snaky veins. He breathed deeply, nostrils flaring out and then in again. The stench of rotted fish and putrid vegetables mingled with the coppery smell of the animal blood that ran out of the market sheds and in between the cobbles around his expensive boots. Along with the aroma of the unwashed beggars colliding with that of the expensive toilet water of the society ladies, these were the smells of Philadelphia, the smells of freedom. Hercules would take them over the fresh hay and magnolia of Virginia any day. Behind him stood a girl and a boy of about 13 and 14. The boy wore the same tassel cap as all of the Washington servants, and the girl was dressed in a plain brown coat and coarse linen mop cap. Her wide blue eyes darted around the busy market while the boy's light brown eyes rested only on her. Ignoring them, Hercules looked 
toward the market shed and the most agreeable posterior of Miss Polly Hayne, the pepper pot seller, as she bent over her cauldron and he smiled broadly. He often enjoyed the delights of Mrs. Haynes' famous stew, as well as those of the free woman herself. If people want to buy Ramin's book, I'm sure they're all on Amazon. If not, when she's broadcast, you can see the correct spelling of her name. You can go to bookstores and get one. And if you want to reach Cindy and I, you want to leave us a comment. It's Women Beyond at iCloud.com. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I'm going to send you light and love to you know who, Shonda Rhimes. (laughs) (laughs) Please do. You can do it. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for everyone that listens and be well. Bye-bye. Wasn't she wonderful, Cindy?